Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Greetings and salutations, listeners. Tonight I'm recording a solo sode. That's I against I. Mono e mono. Wouldn't be mono e mono. It'd just be mono, I suppose. Anyway, it's just going to be me speaking tonight. I'll try to keep the know it allness down, toned down to a three or a four out of six. And I'll try and give you some actionable info about wives' tales. Wives' tales about bike fitting. In fact, I might title tonight's podcast 99 Italian Wives' Tales About Bike Fitting That Need to Be Assassinated. But we have to be careful in this day and age about throwing people under the bus, so maybe I'll omit the word Italians because then I'll offend all the Italian people. I don't know. Maybe not. I mean, it's really a compliment if you think about it. Italy hasn't pretty much changed in hundreds and hundreds of years, maybe longer, and that's what makes it so Italy. But that's also one of the problems with bike fitting is there are all these old ancient belief systems that just, well, they need to be assassinated. So I'm going to talk about some of those things that Italian wives tales, so to speak, that's a colloquialism that they teach us about bike fitting. And I'm going to shoot them down or maybe just enlighten our discussion about what we can move on from. I would love to request a small favor from my audience during this episode do me a favor and go onto Instagram on my account that's cycling in alignment and make a comment. I want you to grade me and I'd like you to grade me in three categories. This is a fun one because I get to make up some words. The three words are the eloquentometer, the verbosometer, and the utilitometer. Utilometer, utilitometer. I told you they were made up. Anyway, I'd like you to grade me on a zero to 10. How eloquent is my delivery? I'd like you to grade me on a zero to 10. How verbose am I? I suppose that one's not fair because I could be too verbose and then you might not know what the hell I'm talking about. So just run with it. A 10 would be perfectly verbose by your definitions. If you think I'm overly verbose and I use too many fancy words or I'm just not explaining myself clearly, then maybe my score sucks. Same thing with the utilitometer. That is how much utility does what I'm talking about have for you? Is it actually useful? Because I can say lots of fancy things and I can say them in a very sexy and smooth way. I can be very eloquent and use all kinds of sleight of hand or verbal trickery. I can prevaricate about the bush, so to speak in such a pleasant way, but if it doesn't actually do you any good, then what the heck are we doing wasting our time here? And I don't want to waste people's time. Time's a precious resource. Some people maybe would think that it is the most precious resource we have. Although I would argue that love is perhaps a more useful currency, so to speak. In any case, if you have the inkling, please go on to the gram and just grade me. Eloquent ometer, the eloquentometer. <laughs> Funny, I can't say that word, and that's what you're grading me on. The verbosometer and the utilitometer. Zero to 10, 10 being awesome, one being, mm, you kind of sucked. 
I would appreciate your input. This helps me figure out what's up. So, 99 Italian wives' tales about bike fitting. Well, there really are probably 99 of them, but I'm not going to list 99 of them. Don't worry. That would be a bit long. Going to try to keep things maybe a little bit on the shorter side tonight, although I do tend to talk a lot. We're going to go for around 10 beliefs in bike fitting that I think we could move on from, that we would be, we would be best to no longer be served by. Bike fitting is a funny industry because it is dominated by really old belief systems. Things that have just been around forever. Like Jean-Luc Picard says, make it so. And that's the way a lot of bike fitting is. It's just been done that way since 1904. Or whenever the Tour de France was invented, my history is not perfect. So I think it was around that point in time. But we've moved on and we've learned a lot. And... There are many, many aspects of bike fitting that are quite confounding and quite confusing from the perspective of the average cyclist or perhaps the unstudied cyclist, even the experienced cyclist. I've done lots of bike fits on people who've been riding their bike for 20 years, 25 years, and they've never had a fit. COVID was a great time for some of those people to come out of the woodwork and come see me, which was a cool experience, but also quite interesting because I found some rare old gems buried in those, those mental movies, those head movies, or auditory recordings of what some random mustached bike mechanic had told them at a bike shop in 1987, and it just hung in there. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that all wisdom or old knowledge should be discarded. That's not the objective of this pod. I'm not all school. I'm not new school and I'm not old school. I'm all school, kind of like KRS-One, except a skinny white guy. But I think that there are a lot of old school beliefs in bike fitting that we can examine critically and learn from. They're learning opportunities. We'll say it that way. They're teaching moments. Let's have some teaching moments. One of the most common beliefs that I see in bike fitting or really just in cycling in general. And I'm not really sure what the origin of this belief system is or the etiology exactly, but it's pretty simple. So many people for some really unknown reason believe or equate a higher saddle with more power. There's a very strong belief system that if your saddle isn't high enough, you're going to be somehow losing Watts or losing half of a point of VO2 or losing efficiency. And while I think there's some, is some science to support this, there's quite a bit of work on study height and crank length on saddle height, excuse me, and crank length that have been done that illustrate that really you have to do things in a pretty broad range to screw it up much larger than people imagine. I think that these science perspectives are a bit short-sighted because they're trying to standardize things and cycling is not a standardizable activity, not very readily. Anytime we put someone in a lab and give them very specific conditions and then ask them to reproduce something, we artificially influence the outcome of the results by design. We, it's very difficult for us to look at things like fatigue rate over a five hour hilly road ride because we don't have the technical gizmos to measure all the fatigue rates over such a long, varied period of exercise. 
with very stochastic power and changing wind and hills and bumpy roads and terrain and dehydration and all the things you experience in the real world. Some of those you can simply simulate in a lab, but find someone who's a really good bike racer to want to ride in a lab and try to simulate all those things. And you've got quite a complex problem. This is part of what I mean when I say there's some stuff you can't really double blind. Perhaps this is one of the aspects that is difficult to quantify in a lab or isolate, we'll say. The bottom line is that it's easy for cyclists to kind of keep raising their saddle looking for missing watts. And bicyclists are notorious for not understanding or being aware of what's happening with their own hips. This is why I'm a bike fitter. You could almost say hashtag I film butts for a living because it's very common for people to be completely disconnected from what's happening when they generate power on the saddle with their hips, what kind of motion we see and in what planes, what kind of deviation from the sagittal plane we see specifically with the SI joints or the iliac crests. And people put together their own pieces from their cockpit view, they might say, they might notice things like, oh yeah, one of my ankles is closer to the crank arm than the other, or one, one foot points out at a funny angle or is duck footed or pigeon toed, however you want to put it. Uh, one knee kind of tends to strike the top tube from time to time. They might notice that their hands are slightly shifted on the bars. They may notice that their head bobbing kind of tends towards one side or the other. But of course, no one can see their own butt while they're riding a bike, not without a pretty elaborate system of mirrors. So it's hard to stay in touch with that. The only way you might know or figure out these things is a sensation of twistedness on the saddle or perhaps a chronic saddle sore that appears on one side, usually in, we'll say the crease between the perineum and the upper, upper, upper thigh. That's the most common area in my experience for a saddle sore. And if you see one on one side or the other, you might draw a conclusion about whether you're sitting off to one side of the saddle or the other, and that can be confounding. Sometimes that saddle sore appears on the side upon, upon which you are sort of, we might say pogoed or suspended. Let's say, for example, that you are hanging the right side of your pelvis off the saddle and supporting more of your weight under the left ischium, which is pretty common in my view, in my cross-section of clients I've seen as a fitter. If that's the case, then you can either have a saddle sore on the left side under the left ischium from all the pressure, or conversely, you can also have a saddle sore on the right side from the in extra chafing and movement of that right side, kind of tracing the foot as it moves towards the handlebars and then down towards the bottom bracket during each, each pedal stroke because it's not supported properly by the saddle. So the belief is that as we raise our saddle, we get more power, which is not even a first grade way to look at cycling. And there is definitely amongst men in particular a belief that saddle height should be higher. It's almost as though the higher the saddle is, the longer your genitalia are and also the bigger your FTP is. And this is just not really accurate. There are a couple of confounding variables here. One is that as we raise the saddle, it tends to initially feel air quotes better. And that's probably because you're moving towards a more complete extension at the knee, which probably feels a little bit like triple extension. Also, as you raise your saddle, you do have to push down and plantar flex the toe at the bottom of the stroke. Now I'm going to say something that's an unpopular opinion in the world of bike fitting. 
it's not shared by all professional bike fitters. In fact, there are experts out there who will vehemently disagree with me on this point, but I'm just going to say it point blank and drop the bomb. Seated cycling is not triple extension. Standing cycling is triple extension. If you're a bike fitter and you think that someone should be plantar flexing or pointing their toes at the bottom of the stroke at bottom dead center at six o'clock, you literally do not understand how the human body works. That is not what cycling is about. The reason we do not want triple extension during seated cycling is that it compromises the stability of the pelvis and cycling foremost. And first of all, unless you're talking about sprinting on the track or Kieran racing, any other discipline besides that, or possibly team sprint, those three disciplines accepted. We are talking about durability and repeatability as the primary demands of the sport. That is what cycling is. When you go ride your bike for hundred miles, you're not actually making your legs stronger. Strength is about peak force, rate of force development, and fiber recruitment. You do virtually none of those things when you ride a bike. The only reason you approach fiber recruitment thresholds is because you glycogen deplete all your slow twitch fibers. And at the very, very end of a ride, you have to recruit fast twitch on occasion just because of exhaustion. That's it. It's not because of force. And it's not because of normal muscular fatigue. Cycling is not a sport that develops strong legs. It's a sport that develops durability. It develops endurance, even when you're doing five minute efforts at maximal pace or one minute efforts at maximal pace. So get that out of your head. That whole triple extension thing, triple extension is for standing cycling. And if you're a rider who makes really good power in the saddle and you look like a duck trying to hump a football getting out of the saddle, then you've got probably a lot of stabilizer work to do. And also you might benefit from some triple extension exercises. So myth number one, the higher the saddle, the more power you make. This is simply not true. It is far more common for me to see people with saddles that are too high than too low in my fitting practice. And when I educate why that is and explain the mechanics of how the dead spots in the stroke are magnified when your saddle's too high, people get it. And then once they see that, well, as the saying goes, there's some stuff you can't unsee. And once you figure out how to drive through the bottom of the stroke with hamstring and eliminate the dead spot, then life gets a lot more interesting. You become a more efficient peddler. And for those of you out there who say you can't learn how to pedal a bike, this is also malarkey in my opinion. But wait, that wasn't number two. Number two is actually a different Italian wives' tale. I don't know if this one's Italian. We'll just call it a wives' tale. We'll call it a, an old belief, like an old wooden ship, which I think is diversity, according to Ron Burgundy. Number two, there is a perfect final fit solution for every rider. This is your saddle height. This is your saddle to bar drop. This is your cockpit reach. This is your stem length. This is your frame size. This is also just a limited belief or way to think about bike fit. Why? Because human bodies are organisms and organisms are trying to maximize their potential to stay alive and also trying to do it while maintaining the lowest baseline of energetic output possible. They are always assimilating their environment and adapting to load and stress, working towards homeostasis. This means your body is constantly evolving. So when you had a fit 
at the age of 18, those numbers are relevant historically to the fit you have at the age of 22 or 28 or 31 or 54, but only historically, meaning they might be in the same zip code, but they may not. How many accidents have you had? How many times have you crashed? How many times have you had shingles? How many years of your life have you spent working behind a desk, not drinking enough water and eating shitty food? How many divorces have you been through? How many deaths have you experienced? All of these life events and habitual movement patterns will impact the emotional and therefore somatic or physical outcome, structure, movement patterns of your body. When you have trauma, death, for example, we as Westerners tend to think of that as an emotional experience, a loss we feel emotionally. However, there is always a physical corresponding moment in the body with all trauma and for that matter, all emotion. We are one in the sense that as we experience emotional trauma or emotional stress, it impacts our body physically. So when we have a pain in the stomach or a pain in the knee, there is an emotional corresponding reaction and feeling that happens with that knee. Now, the cause and effect relationship of the pain in the knee and the feeling in the brain or in the soul can be one direction or the other. That doesn't really matter for the purposes of the point I'm making here. What I'm describing is the fact that we are biosocial psycho creatures who live in the emotional world and the physical world. And these two worlds pass through each other like uh, light through a window and so when we experience life, it changes our body. That's the point I'm trying to get at. And we can look at it a lot more simply too. Did you spend 10 years in the gym doing Olympic weightlifting or CrossFit? Or did you do yoga for 10 years? This will change your bike fit inexorably. So don't assume that because you got a bike fit seven years ago and things have felt great that nothing ought to change. You have changed. You are a different person. Even if your life has been relatively benign, you've had the same job and the same wife or husband and more or less the same criterion race schedule and the same dog, you have changed. You have grown. You have evolved. You have learned. And you have aged. And I'm the last person in the world who will say getting old sucks because I think that, to be honest, when I was an 18-year-old kid, I was kind of a jackass. And now I'm doing my best job to not be that person. And I've learned a lot and made huge strides, although I still have my moments. But for me, getting old is about evolving and improving and make myself a better human. So you won't hear the words getting old sucks comes out coming out of my mouth. I'm also healthier now than I ever have been. To me, every day on this planet is another day to improve my health across all planes, all, all possible nuances, eddies of my existence. Number three, being on the rivet means you should slide forward to the nose of your saddle and going, climbing in the saddle means you should push back or 
even every once in a while, even worse, arguably, when I climb, I push forward on the saddle. This is something that is commonly accepted in cycling folklore circles, and it's total crap, in my opinion. Look, this is illustrated by some pretty basic biomechanical principles, including a rule or a law that you've heard me reference in the past, which I'm pretty sure is a Mel Sif rule from his book, Super Training, which is joint angles dictate muscle function, or as I like to modify it slightly, joint angle indicates muscle function. What do I mean by this? Well, the position of the knee over the foot during a squat or deadlift either will influence muscle recruitment patterns. For the record, the difference technically between a squat and a deadlift is whether the hips translate vertically or horizontally. During a squat, the hips translate vertically. That means they move up and down. During a deadlift, they translate or move back and forth horizontally, dominantly. Of course, there's a little bit of everything in those movements, but we're talking about the dominant path of the hip. And this influences muscle recruitment patterns heavily. This is why deadlifts and squats are recommended for different desired results. If you want to train more posterior chain and more glute, more hamstring, any strength coach knows that a deadlift is a superior exercise to target these muscles rather than a squat. This is intuitively obvious to anyone who studies strength and conditioning. Likewise, knee position over the foot, intuitively obvious that it will determine or heavily influence muscle recruitment patterns during these movements. What do I mean? Well, it's pretty simple. You can illustrate this and see it very quickly on your own. Assume a lunge position. Let's say that you put your left knee forward. Now, when you go into the lunge and you drop your hips towards the ground, you can do it either by dropping the back knee, the right knee straight to the ground, in which case your front shin, your left shin will remain mostly vertical. And if you do this and drive through the front foot, the left foot, to raise yourself up off the ground to elevate your torso, you will drive mostly with the left glute and probably hamstring. You might feel a healthy amount of calf in there also. Now, conversely, if you, when you drop down into that lunge, if you let your left knee come forward, flex your knee more and bring it way out over your toes and then drive yourself up, driving into the left foot, you will likely notice a change in the muscle recruitment patterns. Now you are highly quad dominant. In fact, there's a good chance you're going to feel a lot of tension at the distal end of your left quad. That's your quad near your knee. And you can feel the increased muscle tension. You can even palpate which muscles are firing during this squat by tapping lightly on the muscles with your fingers. The harder the muscle is, the more innervated it is, the more it's being used. So knee position influences the recruitment patterns of these muscles. And knee position is simply manipulating joint angle. The same is true of saddle position relative to the bottom bracket. So if we place our saddle position over the bottom bracket, either fore or aft, to elicit a certain balance of muscle recruitment patterns, that is, we don't want to push it all the way forward because then we would be completely quad dependent and blow out our quads early in a race. And if your quads are fatigued and they're locally glycogen fatigued or the muscle fibers are fatigued to the point where they are exhausted, then you can't race your bike very fast anymore. Likewise, if we push our saddle too far back behind the bottom bracket, then we are going to over-recruit the posterior chain. 
the glutes and the hamstrings will probably become fatigued and or sore while under recruiting the quads. So what we're looking for in saddle offset during a bike fit is a balance between all these muscle groups so that local fatigue and muscle fibers or glycogen depletion locally in a particular group of muscles or even a particular band of muscle tissue, we'll say, doesn't become your rate limiting factor in performance. Instead, you can rely on other things higher up the chain, things like lactate clearance or shuttling, VO2 amount of oxygen in your system, CO2 tolerance, all the other metabolic things that happen when we're not limited by a fatigued muscle. Because cycling is a blend of, we'll say peripheral and central fatigue, central meaning, we'll say aerobic and peripheral meaning muscular. If you create a funnel or a rate limiting factor somewhere in that system of all those fatigue points, then you limit the performance of the total system. It'd be like having a super powerful engine and putting a little tiny valve between where the fuel line, the fuel tank is and the fuel line goes into the engine. If we put too small of a valve there, then you can have a giant engine that's capable of producing tons of horsepower. But if the fuel can't get through the valve, then it won't matter. It doesn't matter how fancy the rocket fuel is you put in there. It doesn't matter how big the fuel tank is. doesn't matter how good the suspension and tires are. doesn't matter how good the driver is. doesn't matter how big the engine is or how many spark plugs you have or how many horsepower it's capable of making. All those things don't matter if we have too small of a valve. And that is the equivalent of what you're doing when you slide forward on the saddle during maximal efforts. It'd be like going to the gym and doing squats and then loading up the bar and doing five sets. And then the last three reps of the final set where you're trying to really push it and gain all the maximal benefit with perfect form, suddenly you don't care about form at all. And your coach says, oh, it's fine if you want to round your back and slap your knees forward. This would be terrible, terrible advice from a strength coach. And likewise, in cycling, it is also terrible advice, but this myth has persisted. It's a function of terrible saddle design in the past, which has set the pelvis into an anterior, excuse me, posterior rotated position, posteriorly rotated position. That's one point off on the eloquinometer. And this allows for a great deal of instability in the pedal stroke. Also a, a desperate attempt for riders to recruit more glute during maximal power. Modern saddles with a cutout allow a more anteriorly rotated pelvis, which is to every rider's benefit because no one should be sitting on their soft tissue when they're riding a bike, man or woman. And also when you rotate the pelvis to the anterior, you upregulate glute recruitment. And what is the largest hip extensor in the body? It's the glute. So we want to use our glutes during pedaling. Believe me, we do not want to only ride quads. So myth number three is that sliding forward to the nose of your saddle on the flats is a good thing. It is not a good thing. It's an indicator that you have crappy form. You're quad dominant. Your saddle's probably not ideal or it's in the wrong place. But most likely, it's just a really bad habit. And I have this discussion quite a bit with people who get on curved saddles. And if they're really old school, they say to me, well, I don't like the saddle because I can't slide forward. And I say, that's good. Cool. Number four, by the way, I'll just note that if you feel that I'm a little spicy tonight, well, I guess I'm fired up. Number four, 
Brake lever should be placed with the tips level with the flats of the bars. This is for all you bike mechanics out there. You need to stop building bikes like this. Brake levers need to be, have a slight upward angle. Specifically, the flat portion of the lever needs to be, for most riders, between 10 and 15 degrees is what I found. I do not prescribe fit data or outcomes based on a range of numbers. You know how I feel about orthodox data. However, there are times when data ranges are useful to help describe what we anticipate finding. That said, there are no rules in bike fitting. Actually, there's only one. The only rule in bike fitting is there are no rules in bike fitting. So there are probably riders out there whose ideal brake lever, lever angle is 22 degrees, and there are probably riders out there whose ideal brake angle is two. However, for most riders, what I want is a saddle that is slightly nose down and curved and supporting their butt at a slight angle. And likewise, I want a brake lever that is slightly sloped down. No, before you get this backwards, I do not mean sloping down so that the front of the lever is lower than the back of the lever. What I mean is the front of the lever is higher than the back of the lever so that the rider is wedged between this sort of triangle, this sloping V shape. So imagine the rider is basically an isosceles triangle. The one side is the angle of the torso. The other is the angle of the arms and the hands are placed on the hoods and the hoods meet those arms so that there's roughly conceptually at least a 90 degree angle between the wrist and the brake lever. We're looking for that even contact patch. And when you are in the brake hoods, there should be no wrinkles at the wrist, either on the bottom side of the wrist or at the top by the thumb. That is the ideal. Now, I'll say this as a side note. This is a bit of an unsolvable problem as a bike fitter. It's challenging because modern brake levers, even super modern ones with electronic shifting buttons and whatnot, are nowhere near long enough. And this is total bullshit if you're the manufacturer of all the components that we use, either from Italy or Japan or the United States or Spain or any other manufacturers of components out there, you're doing it wrong because our brake levers are too freaking short. When we put handlebars on a bike and we make it so that the drop angle gives our rider a neutral wrist with even contact across the surface of the palm as best as possible given the infinite curve of modern road bars. And then we place, place the brake lever such that the lever angle supports a neutral wrist without wrinkles at the backside of the wrist or near the top side near the thumb so that the rider can ride in the hoods comfortably without hand numbness or excessive pressure on either side of the hand. Then when they put their hands in the drops and assume that natural angle and stick their fingers straight out without contorting their wrist, they will be nowhere close to where the brake lever is. This is easily demonstrable. Demo no, demonstrable. Demonstrable is a different word. Oh, that's minus two on the, that's minus one on the verbosa meter for sure. Wrong word. This is infuriating because mountain biking is a relatively newer sport than road riding. And I can tell you that even a novice mountain biker, someone relatively inexperienced who understands conceptually about what they are, what they are about to do by taking a mountain bike down a technical single track with rocks and roots and drops 
Mount bikers intuitively understand, even relatively inexperienced ones, that if their brake lever is not within immediate, direct, and unobstructed reach of their fingers, that they need to stop and promptly make an adjustment to the bike. No mountain biker would ever accept a brake lever that requires contorting of the wrist or fingers to make it to the lever. But if you put someone in the drops of their road bike and ask them to reach for the levers, it's so automatic for everyone to torque their wrist up and stick the finger up to reach the lever that they don't even think about it. And they don't see that they're compromising their grip on the drops. In case you didn't figure this out already, this pisses me off. Brake levers need to be about four centimeters longer than they are. And they need to follow the arc of the drop, not just stick straight out, obviously. So people, can we get it together, please? Because this is not 1904 anymore. And Campy contributed so much to our sport when they made the quick release and the derailleur and all the things they did. But brake levers need to be completely re-engineered to fit a human hand when it's in the drops. And just like all the other projects I've come up with that are actually ergonomic and fit a human body, there are going to be people who think these are ugly as hell. And I'm okay with that. Because if you think that form precedes function, you are wrong. You are wrong. You are wrong. I love you, but you're wrong. There's my song for the day. What do you think about that? Probably lost a lot on the eloquentometer. Eloquentometer. That was number four. Brake levers need to be a little bit higher. 10 to 15 degrees measured across the flat part of the lever. That's my starting point. That's when the drops the flat part of the drops are at about zero degrees. Most of the time when I coach my riders to find a neutral handlebar in the drops and I let them self-guide with a loose bar while riding on the trainer, no, don't do this outside. It's dangerous, you'll crash. When they do it on the trainer, the bar, the flat of the bar almost always ends up plus or minus two degrees from, from horizontal. So there's a very narrow range there in my experience, the majority of the time, not always, but the majority of the time. Brake lever is more like 10 to 15. The more the saddle to bar drop, the less the brake lever angle needs to be as a general sweeping broad brush statement. Number five, when your hips rock, it's because your saddle's too high. Look, there's some truth to this. This isn't an untrue statement, but what I just want to point out briefly, I'll highlight this one, is that there are many reasons why hips can rock when a rider's on the bike. The first is a neurological dominance of one hemisphere of the brain, which causes the rider to apply power unevenly to the pedals. Typically, this results in a spikier pedal stroke on one side with a higher peak force, but also a less smooth stroke on that side. That's typically the same side as the dominant hemisphere. The other side tends to be smoother, but less spiky. And this results in a very asymmetrical distribution of power left to right. We're not robots. We're not gonna make perfectly symmetrical power. Don't be upset when I tell you this, but you listening to this right now, you do this too, everybody does. We all like to think that, whoa, not me, it doesn't apply to me. I make very symmetrical power. We all talk in that voice too. That's the grandpa voice. But 
everybody's got this challenge. We're humans. We're not symmetrical. We've got more lobes of lung on one side. We've got a liver on one side. I mean, we do lots of things asymmetrically. Now, symmetry, it, there's a beauty to it, and we desire to have symmetry and attain symmetry and strive towards symmetry in our movement, and we ride symmetrical machines, at least sort of, aside from the fact that we've got cranks and derailleurs on one side and that a lot of bikes actually don't have centered cranks. But anyway, these are little details. Mostly they're symmetrical, and we strive to make symmetrical power. It's kind of like the thing that we chose to do when we became a bike rider because symmetrical power doesn't really matter during swimming so much. I mean, if it's really bad, you'll swim in a circle, but other than that, it kind of works itself out, especially in open water, right? Most other sports are that way, or some sports are obnoxiously asymmetrical, like, well, golf, for example, golf, tennis, uh, tennis is, you know, asymmetrical in the sense you've got a forehand and a backhand, but basically your torso is more or less oriented the same way for most of the strokes. You see where I'm going with this. So a rider can be rocking their hips on the bike because of really poor core control, because of an inactive pelvic floor, because of a really crappy saddle design that's too sloped and rounded and supporting the soft tissue and doesn't support the ischium, or because their saddle's too high, because their cleats aren't in the right place, because they maybe need some arch support and don't have some, because they've got too much arch support, because their shoes don't fit right, because their cleats are worn out, et cetera, et cetera. There are lots of reasons to unpack here. The big ones are, yes, it can be that your saddle's too high and that's what's causing your hips to rock on the bike. Core control is a really big one. Poor core control or tone or inactive use of the deep core, the inner core is a really big reason for hip rock. Also anterior tightness of the hip, particularly on one side more than the other, a really bound up psoas, these things can, can really result in some hip motion. So that's a myth. It's really not so much a myth, it's untrue. It's a myth that's just very, we'll say it doesn't tell the whole picture. Number six, and number seven, go together. Lower bars mean you are more arrow, and narrower bars mean you are more arrow. This is a first grade way to look at a problem that's really PhD level. Let's just say it this way. Fluid dynamics are really complicated. So we like to assume that when we lower our bars, we're going to get more arrow, but that is not an assumption you can make. First of all, it is possible to have handlebars too low. A rider can be craning over, change the posture of their spine because they don't have the hip flexibility to match the lower bars. And then they start to plow into the air with their upper shoulders because they're too rounded. It's also such that the way the body shape changes when we lower the bars, the rider starts to drop the shoulders or protract the shoulders, depress the shoulders and protract them to reach the bars. And this increases the angle of the scapula towards the wind. And this causes a problem right? So one of a few examples in which ways that we lower the bars might make us less aerodynamic. And this is obviously not desirable. So what I'm saying is, don't always assume that if you want more speed, you should drop your bars and you'll get more aero. I mean, there's the whole other problem of can you make, do you make as much power or as good a power over the long term with that lower bar? And the red herring there is hip angle. That's one of a few factors, but there are lots of reasons why that can go sideways. 
if you want to unpack more about that relationship, check out my podcast on, oh, what did I call it? I think it was functional demands of riding a time trial bike, something like that. It was an episode I did a while ago. And if you're interested in this topic, please go see that. And then let me know what you think. If you have questions, hit me on the gram. That's, that's where we'll do things for now. That's my forum, yo. Um, number seven is narrower bars. It's the same thing. I get this question a lot. What is the right width bar for me? There is no right width bar. I mean, humans are amazingly adaptable, especially in the shoulders. We need to look at it more as a spectrum. What are you trying to accomplish? I find a lot of people have pretty narrow bars on their road bikes or even gravel bikes. For me, I prefer to go up a size in handlebar from road to gravel, at least one size. Actually, currently I'm riding, I used to ride 38 on the track, 40 on the road, 42 on the cross bike back in the day when I was racing cross. Now I don't really ride track because all the velodromes are closed uh, near me. Unfortunately, it's pretty sad, but I still got 38s hanging on my track bike. Um, although that's like a crazy billboard compared to what everyone's riding on. Now, some of the bars that I saw in Tokyo were to be honest, ridiculous, but that's what people are doing. It's the thing. And all these riders are assuming they're more arrow. Now I'm sure the British ones have been tested and they probably are more arrow. They wouldn't be using it. You can only imagine that they were tested, but that doesn't mean that everyone will be faster or more arrow, which are two different things for the record on a narrower bar. Faster and more arrow are not the same thing. Think about it for three seconds. And if you can't figure it out, then think about it longer. So when we make the bars narrower, we are catering to aerodynamics. And if that's your goal, then okay, then you might consider that ideally you have it tested going from a 40 to a 38 or from a 42 to a 40 for a road bike, for example, does that make a measurable difference in your aerodynamics? We would have to test it to know, does it make a measurable difference in your ability to apply power to the bars when you're standing out of the saddle? Almost for sure. Because when you pull on that bar, the longer the lever is, the wider the bars are, one, the more stable the bike is out of the saddle, and two, the more power you have with that arm to counteract the force of the leg. And if we're thinking about counteracting forces and going forward, let's add up all the muscles in the leg against all the muscles in the arm and see who wins. And most of the time, it's the leg. So when you take away a little bit of leverage the arm has, you might really be tipping the balance in the wrong favor there. If the leg's got all this force and the arm can't counteract it, then that force has to go somewhere and it probably dumps into your back or you just don't go very fast or the bike weaves all over the road. There's all kinds of problems there. So let's think for a moment about the relationship between all those muscular systems and how they propel the bike forward. Now, if aerodynamics are not a consideration for your event, why in the heck would you have such narrow bars on your bike? Because wider bars are pretty much like wider tires. Other than maybe racing in aerodynamic situations, there are really no downsides, but lots of upsides. I mean, yes, of course, you can have too wide of a handlebar, and that's not what I'm suggesting. But when you're on the fence and you're, the demands of your event are not aerodynamic or trying to maneuver your way through a peloton, which is one of the only other good arguments for having a narrow bar, then you ought to consider going wider. You get better cornering, probably better breathing mechanics, most likely a more stable shoulder or control center for the upper torso, and additionally, more leverage when you're climbing out of the saddle. Sounds like a good deal. So that's my bit on bars. The last one I'm going to cover tonight, the last, no, there's two left. I got to do two. I'll try and make this quick. I don't want this podcast to be too long. We're almost at 45 minutes. Shut up, Pierce. Drink some water and keep talking. Number eight is 
a smaller frame is stiffer and lighter and therefore better. Really old school bike fitting and also shop advice was buy the smallest frame you can get away with. And this is complete garbage thinking. Oh, yes, of course, a smaller frame compared to the next size up or two sizes up is smaller and lighter. But this is obviously a meaningless statement because if you have to build the bike for the same rider, then you have to have longer stem and a longer seat post to get the bike to be the same place. And the longer stem and longer post are going to weigh more. So we don't gain anything. No, we don't. And the frame is stiffer. And first of all, is stiffer always better? No. Can you please get that out of your head? Why does everything always have to be stiffer and lighter? This is not the way the world works. You don't, if, if this is your paradigm, you're not thinking properly. Yes, there are moments in an engineered structure where we want rigidity and control. And there are moments where we want compliance and springiness. And depending on what moment or we'll say what part of the structure you were referring to and how it distributes load and force, this is where the engineering gets creative. So looking, just saying stiffer is better is just such a 50,000 foot view. It's a useless statement. It's a platitude. And I'm kind of sick of it, to be honest. So this also goes into a bike fitting belief that there is the ideal frame size. I get this question a lot. What's the right frame size for me? As though I think a lot of people, again, I tried not to imagine what other people think, but from the conversations I've had, it seems to me that people believe that there is an ideal frame size. And I don't really think that way. Look, if somebody is five foot nine, 175, 176 centimeters, they come into my office and they want to buy a frame, what I tend to do is look at it and say, okay, we can put you on a size M with this size frame, this size stem, and this saddle setback. And this is how the bike's going to behave. This is how it's going to corner. Or we can put you on a M slash L, a medium large or a 56 or whatever the next size frame is. And we can put you on a different stem size, a shorter stem. And yeah, we'll have less seat post exposed and we'll have a longer wheelbase and perhaps a slightly longer chain stay, maybe not. Maybe a different seat angle, maybe not. Probably a different front center, possibly a different head angle and maybe some other minor frame geometry differences. The biggest one between in this example will probably be the wheelbase and wheelbase will have a subtle but perceptible outcome on ride quality. And I think that the smaller, lighter, stiffer frame argument comes from the idea that we all want to drive 911 Targas or Ferraris for our bikes and that we imagine that a bike that's too big for us will handle like a semi truck. The reality is in my experience that most of the time when people get themselves in trouble, they oversteer the bike at speed. And when they do this, they slide out. And this tends to be because they turn the bars too quickly. And depending on how the bike behaves, if you turn the bars too quickly and the tire contact patch maintains traction with the road surface, then you tend to crash because the bike is turning and you're not. The flip side of that is that if you turn the bars too quickly and the tire just slides, then you tend to crash because the bike is sliding and you're still going straight. So either one can cause problems. But in my experience, the most 
commonly recovered crash is one in which the longer wheelbase gives you a range of error. That is, you start to slide and the greater stability of the wheelbase allows you to recover from that crash. And in particular, I think that's true for off-road disciplines. My experience is that whenever someone's on the fence about a size for a cross bike or a gravel bike or a mountain bike, and they're in between, generally we point them up and give them a shorter stem and that longer wheelbase gets the front wheel out in front of them a little better and it tends to keep things a little more stable, keeps the bike from being broken away from them, so to speak. In a mountain bike descent, how do you crash most of the time? It's because the front wheel, it's because the bars twist out of your hands. That's the most common scenario. The bar twists over a rock or a log or a drop or some other scenario, slippery terrain, and you go straight and the bike turns under you and then you fall off of it. So this is why mountain bikes have shorter stems and wider handlebars. The shorter the stem is and the wider the bars is, the easier it is to maintain leverage on that grip point and keep the bar from twisting, keep the wheel from twisting into your hand. That's what you're trying to do. Well, we can equate, we can add to that equation by adding a longer top tube. Now, a lot of modern mountain bikes have very long top tubes. Some people think too long, so that gets into a bit of a wormhole. The point I'm making is when considering frame size, think about it on a spectrum of benefits, pros and cons. What are the demands of your event? What are you trying to accomplish? Are you a 62 year old rider who never races and just wants to go fast up and down hills and be safe? Then why would you wanna buy a Ferrari? That doesn't make a lot of sense. Are you a criterium racer who wants to maneuver in a field and anticipates very quick direction and speed changes during a race? Uh, manipulating your wheel, flicking it around the front, the rear wheels of other riders to follow an attack or advance in the peloton or turning quickly to uh, move out of the wind when the wind changes, when you come out of a corner or flick off someone's wheel when you're about to sprint for preem, then it's probably a safe bet you want to go on the smaller size of your acceptable frame range. Also understand that the longer the stem is, the easier it is to turn the bike by leaning, but the harder it is to turn by actually steering, that is turning the handlebars. Most road bikes, most corners, most of the time, you turn by leaning the bike, not by steering the bike. Most mountain bikes, you do a healthy balance of both leaning and steering. You lean the bike and you actually turn the bars. When you're at low speed in a single track, going around a switchback, you turn the bars. When you're at low speed and you have to hop over a log and you got to miss the little pointy part because it looks like it's going to go right through the tire casing, you turn the bars. So you need some of both on a mountain bike. Last one, then we're done. This is a big one. Bike fitting myth number nine. We're only going to go to nine today, not 99 and not 10. Number nine is she's a pro. She gets paid lots of money to go race her bike and win races. And she looks like this. Therefore, that's how it ought to be done. She is the shining example of perfection in the sport. She just won an Olympic gold medal slash stage in the world's biggest women's stage race slash spring classic. Pick your, pick your event. He just won a stage in the Tour de France or a time trial in the Dauphiné. Therefore, he is doing it correctly. And his position is something that ought to be emulated. This is a huge misunderstanding about professional bike racers and about how they are positioned. It's really easy to assume that all these athletes have the Steve Austin level series of tests behind them, that they have been bike fitted to death. 
by all the experts in the world and that their position is the perfect symphony of ideal outcome. And this is really, really far from the truth. Having worked in cycling my whole life and seen pro cycling from all angles, I can tell you, I guarantee you, I promise you that most bike racers are held together by super glue and duct tape. They are pros who are training extremely hard and are on the edge of fatigue and burnout quite often. They travel like crazy and travel destroys your body. It also makes finding good food really challenging. And if you think that sitting in a chair, being dehydrated and frequently having access to substandard food is a great way to be the expression of a healthy athlete, you're mistaken. The ones who still win and perform in spite of this are the 0.1 of 0.1. They are the super mutants who can do just about anything and really these rules don't apply to them. But for the rest of us mortals, we have to be way more conscious about how we walk on this planet and take care of our meat sacks, our, our bodies, our hairy bags of water, so to speak. Pros are not athletes to be emulated in most cases. They are extreme athletes who put their bodies through ridiculous amounts of load that you would do best not to emulate. And you should also not look upon them for two things. One, advice about equipment. Or two, look to them to see what a shining example of human function is. Because these riders frequently don't have time to work on their function. They are too busy going from race to race, earning their paycheck and riding hard. And cycling is not kind to human bodies. It turns pretty much everyone into someone with Ichabod crane posture over a long enough timeline who has crappy muscular force, adaptive mus muscular shortening, horrendous posture, and kyphosis. And these are not things, uh, also internally rota rotated shoulders and protracted shoulders. These are not things that we want in a functional human body. Th this is not something for us to strive towards. These are, these are anti-human. This is, this is not healthy. Uh, they also have emaciated upper bodies. Let's not forget that one. Uh, a lot of pro bike racers would struggle to lift their own super light bikes onto a roof rack of the car. Yes, I'm bashing pro cyclists for a moment. And I really don't mean to disrespect anyone. This isn't true for all of them. And there are many good examples or outstanding examples of functional specimens. I'm painting with a very broad brush. So bear with me while I make my point. Just because you see a pro sitting a certain way on a bike does not mean that is the best way for a human to sit on a bike, nor does it mean that pro is optimally dialed for his or her own body. I know it sounds counterintuitive, but we don't actually want to look to our, the best in the world at our sport and follow in their footsteps, emulating their performance and their physical form in most cases. As I said, there are exceptions to this and these riders do amazing things on a bike, things that I was not able to do during my career. I competed on the world level, but only in track cycling. I never, never raced in the world tour on the road. So I'm on, we'll say thin ice at the moment because I'm criticizing the people that I have not been able to, um, share company with per se, at least not on a sporting level. But I think many of them would actually agree with me. And the point I'm making is that I think it's really important for us to realize that even the bike fit 
of a professional is oftentimes not dialed in. It's not the epitome of perfection. It's not the apogee of what we're striving to achieve. It's a function and result of an outcome which has been driven with myopic purpose for years towards one end, and that is professionalism in the truest sense of the word, meaning making a paycheck and pedaling a bike fast. And anyone who is an amateur athlete ought to, by definition, prioritize global health over sporting performance. I think that's a really important sense. So I'm going to say it again. Anyone who's an amateur ought to, by definition, prioritize global health over sporting performance. If you have those two priorities backwards, in my opinion, you are doing it wrong. Because there is no amount of money you're going to win as an amateur that could justify you putting your future health at stake. I don't care how cool you think bike racing is. I don't care how in love you are with carbon fiber. I don't think, I don't really give a shit how amazing you think some pro bike racer is for their performance. You're not that person. And if you build your entire life around riding your bike in amateur races for power bars and gels as a preem or pizza coupons, and you're sacrificing your global health, your long-term health in pursuit of this sport, you got things backwards, man. You really got to take a step back and look at your life and examine your priorities. And I'm, I'm not here to tell you how to live your life, although I pretty much just did. I guess I'm just saying, examine, I'm asking you to examine the priorities of your life and really consider why you would do this. This type of fanaticism doesn't serve anyone, and I guarantee you it does not serve your family. No matter how much sunshine they're blowing up your skirt about how cool it is they think you are, that you rode your bike 100 miles every Sunday for the last 40 weeks. Hopefully that was not too much of an angry rant. I don't know. Maybe that's what you wanted. Maybe that's what I needed. It happened. Let me know what you think. Go forth. Hit me on the gram. That's uh, cycling in alignment on Instagram for those of you who speak in complete words. And for those of you who like made up words, I would like you to rate me zero to 10 on the eloquentometer, the verbosometer, and the utilitomometer, which sounded like I added thermometer in the middle. Let me know what you think. Thank you for listening. And next week, I'm hoping to get a coach on the podcast once again. You promise you won't have to listen to me rant about how everybody's doing it wrong. I need someone else here to help make sure I spread the love. Because I do have a lot of love for this sport. It just gets me fired up sometimes. Thanks for listening, everyone. Talk to you soon. Ciao. Attention, space monkeys. Public service announcement. Really, technically, it's a disclaimer. You already know this, but I'm going to remind you that I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a doctor. So don't take anything on this podcast to constitute lawyerly or doctorly advice. I don't play either of those characters on the internet, which again is self-evident. Gratitude.